Welcome to Top of Mind, the show where we talk to real estate industry insiders and experts about the biggest trends impacting the market today. Enjoy the show. Mike Simonson here. Thanks for joining me today. Welcome to the Top of Mind podcast. This is where I talk to the uh, smartest leaders, thinkers, and doers in the real estate and broader economic industries. Uh, For a few years now, we've been sharing the latest market data every week in our weekly video series. With the new Altos Top of Mind podcast, we're, we're looking to add some context to the discussion about what's happening in the market from the from the leaders, the people who have a different perspective on just the data we look at every day. And and every every week, Altos Research tracks every home for sale in the country, all the pricing, all the supply and demand, all the changes in that data, and we make it available to you before you see it in the traditional channels. Uh, people desperately need to know what's happening in the housing market right now. It was so hot and so competitive, and then the landscape changed so dramatically and suddenly. And you know, people ask me, like, can, Mike, can I get the data for my local market? The answer is yes. Go to altosresearch.com, get free consultation on how you can use market data in your business today. So without further ado, let me introduce my, my guest today, Nick Timoros is the chief economics correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. Nick covers the Federal Reserve and other major developments in U.S. economic policy for the journal. He's also the author of a fantastic new book called Trillion Dollar Triage, How Jay Powell and the Fed Battled a President and a Pandemic and Prevented Economic Disaster. This is a riveting account of all the incredible actions required to keep the world afloat as the pandemic rolled in. And it's it's funny to say this about a a book about the Federal Reserve, but this is a total page turner. Like, uh, I don't know, maybe that says more about me, but I really enjoyed that book. And it was really funny. Like, I'm just like, what happens next? You know, so Nick, welcome. So Thank great you. to have you here. Thanks for having me. And thanks for the kind words about the book. It's, it's great. Let's let's get started uh, with you. You're the chief economics correspondent with the Wall Street Journal. That's a, a big job. You've been there for a long time, actually. Uh, tell me about tell me about the role and a little bit about your journey getting there, and then we'll roll into the book and the policy and all kinds of good stuff. Sure. Well, so I've been at the Journal for 16 years, and uh, I covered uh, one of the first things I covered was the housing and real estate market. I used to rely on you for uh, for data on listings. You know, 10 years ago when everybody was trying to figure out if the market had hit a bottom. Uh, so I covered the GSEs, housing finance space, uh, for about five years after the bust. And then I moved down here to Washington uh, about eight years ago to cover economic policy more broadly, Treasury Department, fiscal policy. And then starting in 2017, uh, I, I moved pretty much covering the Fed most of the time. And, uh, and and that's been you know that's kept me busy. Yeah. So uh, so you're based in in D.C. now, and really the focus is is about like the covering the Feds is pretty much a full time job, huh? It, it is. I mean, it, it, there's you know there's other pieces of ac- economic policy, uh, and you know in 2017, of course, tax policy was getting a lot of the attention, but really since the pandemic, monetary policy has been because it's been a first responder first to the downturn and now obviously to this high inflation uh you know we've had very active monetary policy so there's been a lot to keep track of and sort out for our readers yeah for sure and and of course uh 
everybody has an opinion on <laughs> what they should be doing or what they think they're doing. And I'm really interested, maybe a little bit later in the conversation about getting your take on like how, how we know what the Fed actually is intending and as opposed to what we are reading into what they're intending. Those kinds of things are really, those questions are really fascinating to me. Um, <clears throat> let me start with the book though. So Trillion Dollar Triage, it's it's uh, about, you know, shielding the economy from from the the public health disaster and the the resulting financial crisis. Um, t- tell us about the book. Yeah, so you know the title itself uh, comes from you know the the heart of the book is really scoping out what was happening in March of 2020 that required such dramatic interventions uh, from the Fed from the the whole government economic policy apparatus. And if you think back to March, at, you know, 2020, when everybody was trying to get their hands around, well, if we shut down commerce, which had happened in China, uh, you know, earlier in the year, w- what would that look like? And the Fed made an emergency rate cut in early March, March 3rd. Uh, they announced, you know, 50 basis point uh, emergency cut, which was very surprising. And the attitude at the time was, well, gee, how is easier monetary policy really going to address this, this challenge that we're heading into? Uh, and then the following week was when strains really uh, built up in markets. And so the book walks through what was happening, what was breaking down, and why was the Fed responding so quickly? In the matter of days, the Fed had really run through Ben Bernanke's playbook from the 2008 financial crisis. And that was those were a series of actions that had really taken about 18 months uh, for the Fed to compile and deliver. So within a matter of days, uh, Jay Powell has run through Bernanke's playbook. And now in the week of March 16th, because you know this, this triage, as I term it, which is really sort of, you know, you think of battlefield medicine where you're trying an intervention. If it works, great, you don't have to do anymore. But if it doesn't work, you have to increase the dosage or increase the 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 medicine. Uh, and, and that's what the Fed was doing. So the week of March 16th, you start that week with the emergency rate cut that takes rates to zero. The Fed is buying large scale purchases of treasury securities and mortgage-backed securities, and it's not working. And, and the book kind of walks through how uh, Powell and his inner circle was reacting to this as they saw complete dysfunction in the MBS market, forced sales of treasury securities by global central banks uh, because people were were uh, trying to get their hands on dollars. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of where this idea of triage came from. I didn't realize, uh, even as I was writing the book, that we would see more fiscal policy. And so the the title maybe has another meaning there with, with respect to the trillions of dollars that the U.S. Congress and the White House spent to deal with the crisis. Uh, but this was an unprecedented shock, and it led to unprecedented policy response, which obviously we're still uh, we're still dealing with that right now. Yeah. And and it's like, you know, it's funny because like, that's why it was such a page turner. It's literally day by day or hour by hour chronicle of what was happening. And right. one of the things that struck me is, you know, we, we get into this conventional wisdom that uh, the, the economy uh, was shutting down because of the lockdowns because of the government interventions uh and and like the 
bad, like the the government broadly is to blame for the challenge we're in. But what the book was like, what I was noticing is like, there's a big chunk of the book that's before, you know, we had, we had, you know, barely any cases at all in the US. Like with the, the global economy was just grinding to a halt uh, way sooner. And I, I have a couple of anecdotes of like, you know, friends with multi-million dollar tourist companies who went, right you know, went like negative, not just negative profit, but negative revenue, you know, before, before anything else was happening. Like, you know, people were like, it was, it was really incredible in a lot of places. Yeah. That was the issue was how do businesses, how do you prepare for revenues going to zero? I mean, there's just no, there's no way. So that necessitated this response. But I, I also think part of the story is about the people in those jobs, because these decisions are made by people and you know the 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 decisions that Jay Powell made are not necessarily the decisions that a different fed chair would have made or that they would have made them as quickly as Powell made them one thing that surprised some of Powell's former colleagues was how quickly he moved in March and the reason he moved quickly was uh, he was concerned that market dysfunction was going to lead to a financial crisis on top of this public health crisis and so he gets after his staff again, near the end of that week on March 16th. And he says, it feels like we're swimming after a speedboat and we're going to have to catch up this weekend. We need to get ahead of this. And I've been thinking about that a lot this year because the Fed this year has at times, I think, felt like it's in a similar situation. And so if you want to understand why Powell is doing the sorts of things he's been doing this year, which obviously policy has been completely different, I think it helps to understand you know what makes this person tick why they're reacting the way they do how they how they confront a problem how they solve the problem how they assess the risks on both sides of it and this year the story obviously has been you know they fell behind in terms of getting interest rates up and they want to catch up and their their method of catching up has been to raise interest rates in 75 basis point increments every 6 weeks which the fed hasn't done you know, since they began using the federal funds rate in the early 1990s. So this isn't just a story about 2020, though that's where the focus of the book is. It's about how these policymakers, you know, what what makes them tick? Who is this guy that Donald Trump plucked from relative obscurity to run, you know, the central bank of the reserve currency of the world? Yeah, um, this, the people in the stories um, it, it, it are like a really compelling part of the writing. And and I, I actually enjoyed, like the first third of the book is like, it's like the history of the Fed. And there right. were a couple of things striking about that <clears throat> is that as an institution, how young it is and how few times, how few like times it's had to do these things. So like the policy using the Fed fund rates, funds rate is only early 90s policy. We've only had a couple of recessions since then. Like, like it, it's it, like we don't have a lot of training data. Uh, you know, uh, on like, how do you do it? How big do you do? It? How fast do you do it? And and then the other part of it that was really striking to me is how it's literally a handful of people sitting around going, "Okay, here we go!" Like, and, and making world impactful decisions. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, they're they're you know the the modern Fed. You could really date it to the end of World War II. That was where sort of the Fed as it exists today uh, took shape. And the Fed the, the Fed chair during the 
1950s and 1960s, William McChesney Martin Jr., he reminds me a little bit of Jay Powell because he is not an academic. He's not a PhD economist. He actually jokes to somebody uh, during his career that, you know, the Fed, we have a lot of economists, but I prefer to keep them in the basement. Um, this is somebody who's worked in the government. He's worked in the private sector. He ran the New York uh, Stock Exchange before World War II. And uh, he comes up with this idea that the Fed should really lean against the inflationary winds. So when the economy's doing well, that's when you raise rates. You want to tamp down on uh, excesses and overheating. And when the economy's weak in a recession, that's when you want to uh, provide more stimulus. He wasn't a Keynesian. He wasn't devoted to the views of John Maynard Keynes. Um, but that was sort of where the economics profession was moving uh, through his tenure. And so he's he's the Fed chair that sort of makes the Fed into the institution that it is today. And then the Fed goes through this searing episode of the 1970s inflation, which you know, creates even more the institution as it exists today. As in the last 30 years have been about building on and defending the legacy of, of a credible inflation-fighting central bank so that you don't have to go through something like what the U.S. went through in the 1970s. Yeah, so that actually, let's divert from the book for a second to talk about, you know, the as you mentioned, the the impact on the policy today. You know, we're, we're in this, this, um, uh, you know, surprise, surprise, yet again, unprecedented times. Right. And and so the Fed is, you know, is cranking up rates really quickly. And of course, all of the the pundits in the world are in the uh, you know, the Fed's gonna bring us to a recession. Uh and and then and then the secondary is is like all of the reading into what the Fed wants to do. Uh, or what you know, unspoken, but they really want to do this. Um, what what do we what do we what do we need to know in the next for the next year about what's coming on Fed policy, um, and and maybe even as it as it relates to the mortgage security market and and uh, and and then therefore real estate. So that's a great question. And if you'd asked me a year ago what the next year would hold, I would have given you a, an answer that couldn't have been more wrong. So I'm a little bit hesitant to predict what the next year is going to bring. But, you know, the Fed has been very clear about where their focus is right now. Inflation has been much too high. And the challenge, I think, is that they have been expecting inflation to diminish at some point. We had these supply chain bottlenecks. We had a, a, a shift in the composition of spending from services to goods that pushed up prices of things like used cars by 40 percent last year. And the Fed has been expecting that that would come back down to earth, uh, and it hasn't. And, it, it, and so that's you know that that's one of the reasons why inflation has been stubbornly high is they haven't gotten the goods disinflation that they were expecting. You layer on top of that the the hit from the commodity shock out of the Ukraine war, and then uh, so you know those are two things that you expect could could improve. Commodities have come down a lot over the past couple of months. The supply chain is getting better. And so a lot of people say, well, gee, shouldn't that bring inflation down at least to 3% by the end of next year? And that's pretty much what the Fed is expecting, that those things will help bring inflation down to 3% by the end of the next year. So why is the Fed so concerned right now and so willing to err on the side of causing a hard landing uh, of recession to, to get inflation down? And it's because they are concerned about the labor market and wages and wage growth feeding through to more persistent inflation. And so 
it seems likely that the Fed will continue to keep interest rates, to keep raising interest rates until they're confident that the labor market is going to soften. The, the worry right now that you hear from current and former Fed officials is that uh, wage, if you look at real wage growth, it's actually negative. Take 5% wage growth annually against 7 or 8% inflation. So workers are getting real wage cuts. But if you change jobs right now, you're getting double digit pay increases. So job switchers are, are coming out ahead with this high inflation. And if more and more people decide that that's what they have to do to have a real wage gain, uh, and you have more job switching and those people are getting higher in, uh, increases in wages, then you bake in higher wages overall into the economy. And if you think about you know, the main ingredient when you go out for a, a restaurant meal, uh, you know, when you spend on a, a, something in the service sector, it's labor intensive. Wage costs are the, the main ingredient there. And so the Fed is concerned that even if the labor market didn't start this inflation, that that is what could sustain higher prices. And it's a risk that they find unacceptable to get into a situation where people com come to expect inflation to stay high would run a risk of the 1970s repeating. And they don't want to go through 1979, 80, 81. Uh, and so the, the lesson is if you can if you can get rid of that now, if you can prevent that psychology from taking hold, you know, hopefully they, they will get the help from the supply chain, but they're not sure it's going to be enough. And that's why they've been raising rates as aggressively as they've been. That's fascinating. So the job switchers getting the getting the feeling the the inflationary pressures and, and that sense a good sense for them the wage gains it's kind of like parallel to to the real estate market like uh you know home prices climb so high but um but everybody's locked into a cheap 30-year mortgage so most of the country doesn't notice that right. it's only the people who are moving right Right. And that's different from, you know, central banks across the world are raising interest rates. And in these countries like Canada or the UK or Australia, where they're raising rates and everybody has an adjustable monetary policy is going to feed through a lot faster into the economy. Uh, you know, you're going to get a very hard slowdown uh, in housing here. But if if that transmission, if that transmission mechanism doesn't lead to weakness, uh, then that may encourage the Fed they you know to conclude they have to do more. So I think the challenge right now is a lot of people, because of the way the Fed operated over the last 15 years was, well, if the economy slowed down, the Fed would ease. And that was because the Fed thought growth was was too slow, inflation was low, and so they could do that. You know, they see some shock coming and the equity markets responding to that. The Fed responded to it too. This is completely different because we haven't been through a high inflation environment in such a long time. And so I think it calls for some humility in in how the Fed is going to respond to this. And you can't assume that, you know, the way that they reacted in 2016 or 2012 is is going to be the case this time. Yeah, they and that actually brings up an interesting point. So the because the US all the US homeowners are locked into ultra low mortgage rates, the you're saying that that the that the Fed is actually less able to slow the economy. Well, that you know, it's that's certainly a possibility, right? If if housing is their first, you know, transmission mechanism, obviously it'll show up elsewhere. But what the Fed wants right now is to slow 
uh, aggregate demand, right? There's there's there there's too much chasing too little, and so that you know the the housing market benefited the most when the Fed was trying to stimulate the economy during the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic last year. And and now it's just the complete opposite, right? It's like a switch has been flipped uh, probably from mid-June uh, when the Fed accelerated the pace of rate increases to those 75 basis point hikes. I mean, I wrote a story back in May sort of asking the question, well, gee, if there is this uh, shift in demand because the pandemic changed people's demand for housing, and if supplies are constrained, maybe a five and a quarter or five and a half percent mortgage rate, which really did slow the housing market at the end of 2018, maybe it won't have the same impact now. And then just within weeks, you know, we were we were well past five and a half percent mortgage rates because the Fed was uh, was dialing dialing up the increases. Yeah. And, and you know, we're watching the data. And what's fascinating is that we can watch we watch in in August, rates were kind of easing back down, mortgage yes. rates easing back down around five, right. and people were buying houses. Right. Then September one, they spiked from five to seven and over a you know short period of time and 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 the brakes went on hard. Right. It's really it looks to me like that's a but that's a, a threshold where our consumers are like gonna going to be operating. But it gets to two other questions I have. One is um is in so one of the things that the Fed did uniquely during the the triage uh, was started buying uh, mortgage backed securities, and right. as a result, one of the consequences that was that mortgage rates fell to ultra ultra low levels. Um, and uh, so the question is, and so now they're like unwinding that, right? That's one of the reasons that that, that rates are jumping up higher. Um, so let's say, uh, and, and it sure looks to me, uh, like the fed overshot and kept buying those too long, kept when we could, everybody knew that the, the real estate market was too hot, you know, two years ago, we could see it, you know, it, it's like the pandemic was, was already way underway, um, uh, was barely underway. And, but, but the, the real estate market moved super fast. So, so the, the fed overshot on that side, right. I, I would say, um, now the other side is uh, rates are at seven percent. The brakes are on hard on demand, and um, it, what is the likelihood that the Fed like? So then, let's say we have a hard crash in housing next year. Um, no buyers anywhere. Let's hypo- hypothetically. Right. What's the what's the uh, what's the chance that the Fed says, "Oops." And now it starts using that mortgage securities lever in a non-crisis moment, or is that gone forever? Like, is that now a, a common uh, lever that they're going to use? It's 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 hard it's hard to know. I guess what I would say is, you know, I think there's some confusion about why the Fed buys mortgage-backed securities because obviously, obviously, it's a transmission mechanism into the housing market, but. There was a debate a couple of years ago when the Fed was done buying, you know, their 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 final round of purchases from the last decade. It ended in 2014. They kept their holdings steady for a while. Then they began to shrink their balance sheet, uh, passively allowing some of those securities to run off in, in 17, 18, and 19. And there was a debate around whether the Fed would buy MBS again in a crisis because a lot of people, uh, the Fed, um, are more conservative. 
you know, MBS as a credit product. Uh, we shouldn't buy anything other than, you know, U.S. government securities. We don't want to allocate credit to one sector or the other. And there was a conference where Bill Dudley, who uh, is now the former New York Fed president, he may have still been the New York Fed president at the time. The New York Fed president's very important. One of, the, one of the most senior officials in the system because they run that process of purchasing these securities. And he made the point that said, no, look, in the next downturn, the Fed can buy MBS because the Fed sees it as a, as a duration product. It's a product that doesn't have credit risk if you assume that the government has backstopped the GSEs. So they're not taking any credit risk. They're taking, it's a rates product. They're taking duration out of the market. And if you wanted, when the Fed purchases long-term treasury securities, it's because they've cut interest rates to zero and they want to provide more stimulus. And the way they think they can do that is push, pushing down uh, yields across the curve. And so buying, if you see it as a, as a duration product, the Fed buying MBS isn't because they want to put their thumb on the scale for the housing market per se. It's because they want to bring down yields more broadly than that. Wow. And so that was the rationale partly for continuing MBS purchases in 2020. I mean, first they went in because the MBS market was broken. The treasury market was was breaking down. So they went in and they were buying large portions of those securities. A lot of the reason mortgage rates went down so much was because the 10-year treasury yield was down below 1%. Uh, and the Fed was tightening spreads a little bit by purchasing MBS uh, on top of treasuries. But it was a way to bring down the whole yield structure and so that was their argument for continuing to buy MBS last year, even when it was obvious that the housing market was was very well. You know, they they're aware of what was happening with mortgage rates, but they saw they they saw the two moving together. That it's a thirty year uh, duration product that we're able to purchase because we can't buy as much duration in the U.S. Treasury market. That's fascinating. So so the argument is uh, that that the Fed may like still has this arrow in its quiver be, uh, in the view that it's uh, it's such a big market and that and it's actually uh it, it like that like, as a as a as an instrument of broader rate curve rather than uh that it actually cares per se about housing Right. Now, now, you know, there's a question about next time, will the Fed even need to buy treasuries and MBS in a downturn? Because if you've raised interest rates to four or five percent, you have more room to cut. The, the big concern inside the Fed before the pandemic hit was you're going to be in a situation like Japan and Europe where interest rates are pinned near zero. And in Japan and Europe, they had and Japan still has negative rates. And you're just monetary policy is going to have no juice. There's going to be no juice left to squeeze out of that piece of fruit. And so the whole you know, apparatus was geared towards when you hit the lower bound, act boldly so that you actually don't get stuck there for a long period of time. And that was the Fed had completed this whole review in 2019. And so when the pandemic hits, they say, oh, my gosh, this is the shock we've been worrying about. And it's a much bigger shock because of the unemployment rate was you know, north of 14 percent, um, they didn't realize things were going to reverse as quickly as they did. And so then la you get into last year. What were the mistakes the Fed made last year just to quickly run through them? Yeah. You know, they had they had provided this guidance that said we're not going to raise interest rates until we are confident that inflation is not just going to be at our two percent target, but a little bit above it. Nobody, when they rolled out that guidance, thought this was going to be a problem. And they conditioned their pullback of stimulus on the labor market getting 
back to around where it was before the pandemic. So last year, they were very focused on the labor market, even as inflation was starting to run very high, well above their their plans for a modest overshoot of 2%. Then, of course, they got their forecast wrong. Like a lot of private sector economists, they thought inflation would come back quickly. This is tied to the pandemic. The pandemic has a beginning, middle, and end. So too will this inflation. And they didn't recognize how strong demand was and how it was going to fuel inflation for longer. And then uh, you know, you have the fiscal stimulus. They don't respond to the fiscal stimulus that Biden approves right away. The last point I would make is they were very concerned about the taper tantrum episode of 2013. They didn't want to prematurely tighten policy because of confusion. So they thought they had to be very uh, deliberate in terms of socializing the idea that we're going to pull back on these bond purchases. We don't want anybody to get confused. We don't want treasury yields to jump by 100 basis points the way they did in 2013. And if you were in the housing and mortgage market, then you remember what happened in, in the second half of 2013, there was a pullback. And so they were so concerned about not repeating the mistakes that they thought they had made with prematurely uh, tapering, raising rates too soon uh, in 2015, that they were, they were very geared towards not making those mistakes again. And that explains partly why they they fell behind. You know why were they buying MBS earlier this year? Well, they had tried to avoid the taper tantrum, and so when you you know when you fight a last war, you you run the risk of making new mistakes, and and that's where we are now. I mean that gets to one of your questions as well. If you're so geared now towards not preventing a repeat of 75, 76, 77, 78, etc., are you going to you know have something else break in the market next year that you're going to be responding to? Um, and and that is a risk, of course, that, you know, there could be some financial stability thing that that is what forces the Fed maybe not to back off of their plans to raise interest rates, but to come back into the market in some way, which you've been seeing, uh, you know, in late September, early October, with the, the Bank of England having to go into their, uh, you know, the long end of their debt market. Yeah. Wow. So, so much there. The th one thread I want to pull on here is... Uh, when we got down, we're, uh, we're in this really low or 0% interest rate environment. And one of the the, the sort of uh, threads in your book is uh, before the pandemic, Powell was in an interesting situation with Trump where he was actually, where Trump was throwing his, his trade wars and his tariffs, and these were actually putting real breaks on the economy. And so Powell was in a situation where he was like the Fed was forced to lower rates to help support the economy in the face of the, the policies. Um, and so the, the question I have, what I had when I was reading that is, is what's the legacy of that? Like of that situation, you know, uh, like what, what in retrospect is that, uh, is that is that a big deal uh, that like got us into a situation where like wow we have to do more we have to buy the mortgage securities because we can't we can't lower the the short end of the curve anymore yeah i mean in in 2019 if you if you look back at the powell fed i think the most uh internal opposition he may have faced would have been in the summer of 2019 when it was termed the mid-cycle adjustment this idea that you would cut rates not you know in a full rate cutting cycle because we weren't in a recession, 
but maybe there was a concern either maybe the Fed had gone too far in 2018 and or the trade war was kicking up all this uncertainty that was leading growth to slow more than had been uh, anticipated when the Fed was raising interest rates in 2018. So they cut rates three times. Powell takes dissents on all of those cuts. He takes three dissents um, at one of the meetings, uh, which is a lot. Uh, you know, I, I think the, the issue there is that the pandemic hit in March of 2020, and it so it completely screwed up our ability to see, well, what was the economy going to do after that? We, we'll never really know whether, I mean, there's some people who think 2019 was, uh, you know, a successful intervention. Powell achieved this soft landing. We would have had two more years, three more years of an expansion if the pandemic hadn't hit. Uh, and, you know, that would have looked like a great job of interest rate control, fine tuning things. There are other people who think, no, no, that ignited a, uh, you know, uh, a bubble. You were seeding bubbles, you were keeping rates too low. But the truth is, I don't think we'll ever really know because what happened in March 2020 was just so explosive and destabilizing that the Fed had to go all in. And uh, and so, you know, it's it's hard to make sense of kind of the legacy of 2019. Oh, that's it. OK, so fair enough. And I can uh, if we look at the at the real estate data per se, the you know, we can see that the mortgage rates rose in 2018 and uh, and in 2019 actually of inventory rose, uh, you know, year over year for the first time in a decade, because like, like it had a real impact. And, and right. by the end of 2019, home prices were pretty much flat year over year. So we started 2020. Um, then all of a sudden there's, there is real demand kicking in early in 2020 prior to pandemic stimulus, right. uh, that, that may have been the legacy of the, the 2019, uh, changes that you're talking about that some of the, some people uh, were able to look at that and go, I can see the 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 asset bubble forming uh, already starting there. Is that what we're talking about? It's possible. I mean, like I said, yeah. it's just it's 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 one of these counterfactuals, the what if game that academics yeah. like to play, and it'll it'll just be too hard to know because of because the shock was so massive. It was so massive. So I have another question in this in this policy stuff is that you know. One of the challenges the Fed has is uh, what you might call lagging data, especially on on in real estate. Like the, you know, the the real estate inflation numbers are based on rents that really action we could see six, eight, ten months ago. Right. Um, and so, but everybody knows it. So. Is the Fed still stuck there, or is there more? Is there a way to get a, change that to make better policy? To like, like so, if the Fed uses the headline CPI now and says, "Well, you know, inflation's still high, and we need that to be not," but that's a big chunk of that is based on on rents, right? And rents that in, increased a long time ago, and that's no longer happening. Like, how do it, are we? Is there any chance that we that the Fed's using better data? I've heard some talk about it's, using it's not that they it's not that they have better data but they're aware of how you know the the bls constructs this panel to measure rents that has a lag because they're looking at at what everybody's paying and not just what new tenants are paying and so they're trying to account for that and so you see higher highs in new rent 
and uh it looks you know it's it's it, it didn't rise as much last year the bls series of rent the pri rental primary residence series so but when it gets to so this data is lagged uh and obviously the fed is aware of this so they're coming up with a forecast the question I get is, well, what are they looking at right now? Are they looking at headlines? I mean, obviously they look at everything, but if you had to look at only one or two things to try to understand what they're going to respond to, don't look at year over year, look at month over month, look at core inflation. It can be CPI, it can be PCE. They're looking at both. CPI comes out two weeks earlier than PCE. So that's kind of our first look. And you can usually take, and the Fed does take, uh, the PCE is is calculated from different inputs into the CPI and a third gauge, the PPI. So if you know what the CPI and the PPI are, you can kind of guess PCE. But anyway, core CPI, let's stick with that for a minute. You know, that's been running 0.5% month over month in certain months. That's high. That is, you know, to get 2% uh, annualized inflation, you need the monthly readings to be much closer to 0.2 than to 0.5. So that's the first thing to look at is where is core inflation coming in and you know yes housing and rent is a, is is punching above its weight right now but maybe not as much as you think if you look at the last inflation report or the one before from august if you look at the august cpi that came out in mid september if you take housing out and you look at just core services um you know there's core goods and core services are the two components of core inflation so if you do core services excluding housing, it's still printing high. Uh, there are other kind of alternate gauges you can look at. Median CPI looks at the the you know all of the different inputs into into the inflation and looks at kind of the the median of of uh, all of those different items in the price basket. And you take out housing, median CPI is still high. So the concern for the Fed. Yes, they see that inflation may be slowing in the in the shelter complex, but if it's broadening across services, that's going to be cause for concern because that would reinforce their fear that you have a very tight labor market that is putting pressure on wages and that is you know filtering through to the rest of the service sector. Um, so you 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 look at inflation right now, you may get goods coming down. You're hopefully going to see commodities coming down if, if energy prices stay low. Um, but it's really that services basket. And you can look at it with or without housing. And if you see the without housing part getting better, then that, you know, that could be a sign of comfort because you may expect to be getting the relief, you know, six or seven months from now from uh, the, the rental numbers that you already do see the, the deceleration there. Got it. So if the if the decision makers there see those the other elements um in the inflation numbers coming down even though the the rent especially rent is lagging and still high uh is it so that implies that they go okay we know that the rent rent is lagging like maybe we can make our decision based on the the elements that we do see coming into line like is that uh, arguing that we might uh th like that that um they might be able to act more quickly. Like one of my fears is that, you know, based on what I, you know, like uh, I was talking with Adam Osmek, who's an economist who's, who's pointed out that yeah. there is, if you work in the amount of rent increases that we've had and the amount that have already shown up in the inflation numbers, there's still like two thirds of that rent gain to still get into the inflation yeah. numbers. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and so like that's scary to me that like if they're going directly on that lagging data and is it so is there a chance that they sort of ignore it you know be, because of the elements they can see well again i think that you know they construct a forecast and they they are aware of how these lags operate so they're looking at sort of the primary uh you know whether it's a real page or apartment list or whatever you, whatever index you want to take that measures apartment rent they can see what's happening with new leases just like everybody else and they can come up with a forecast but if you know if that's getting better but nothing else is getting better that may lead you to do something different than if that's getting better and everything else is getting better too you know one of the things where the fed got in trouble last year was doing this kind of micro approach well, we'll look at airfares. Well, we'll look at used cars. Uh, you know, those are bad, but everything else isn't bad. Um, but it ended up being a macro problem. There was a lot of demand in the system and the supply chain couldn't handle it. Uh, but part of the reason the supply chain couldn't handle it was because there was a lot of demand. Right now, as you, you hear kind of anecdotally in the construction space, some of the builders I've heard, they're not worried as much about labor supply anymore. They're saying, well, labor shortages are kind of fixing themselves because demand has come down so much. Um, and, and, and so that kind of gets at it is, is it a supply problem here or is it a demand problem? And is, if it's both, you know, the, the Fed is going to want to see evidence, not just that one component is getting better, but that the other components are also not getting worse. So fascinating. So fascinating. Okay. Tell let's uh, back to the book for a few minutes. Let's. So when you were uh, researching the book, were there things that surprised you that you learned along the way? Yeah, I, I think one of the surprises was a little bit, you know, you've heard the saying that uh, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And uh, and that sort of came through. I mean, th the idea that when, when Trump was beating up on Powell and the Fed a few years ago, you know, it was a little bit of a surprise to people who had followed the Fed closely only because it hadn't happened in about 25 years. There had been this unwritten rule that Bill Clinton began to enforce, which was you actually might get better monetary policy if you don't pressure the Fed, because the, then the Fed doesn't have to take into account that they're showing their resolve, that they're defending their independence. There was an episode in 1992 where uh, in the run up to his uh, doomed reelection, George Bush Sr. had given an interview to The New York Times and he had pressured the Fed to, to, to cut rates a little bit more. He said the Fed was too tight. And you can actually read the transcripts from the Fed policy meetings. They're public. Um, and you can see that that interview was discussed in the meeting. There were a couple of, of Fed officials who said, well, gee, maybe because we're under pressure from the president, we shouldn't give him what he wants because then it'll look like monetary policies become more political. So that led to, to Clinton uh, and, and uh, you know, George W. Bush continued that precedent of not pressuring the Fed publicly, telling the Fed what to do. Obama continued that precedent. Trump ended it. But we had this history of, of presidents actually pressuring the Fed. And, um, and, and you know, Truman was, was the one who really had gotten upset with the Fed because the Fed had fixed interest rates during World War II and had committed to fix interest rates by buying government debt in whatever quantities were necessary, even after the war. And the Fed's independence came when, in 1950 and early 1951, the Fed said, we can't do this anymore. We think we're causing too much inflation. And Truman actually summons the entire open market committee to the Oval Office, to the White House. That's never happened before, never happened since. And he says, 
we're going to war in Korea. If you don't give me the policy I need, then you're helping Stalin. Um, and and so the Fed actually held its ground, said we, we need to do this. Truman was in a weak position politically. Uh, and so he he couldn't fight the Fed at that point. And you ended up with sort of the that that was where this idea of an independent Fed came from. Neat. That's uh, yeah, that the history part of the book is really, really, really fascinating there. Um, OK, let's let's shift gears to the future. So I, I actually I, like one of the things I like to do with my guests is is get your take on, you know, where where the future like what's in store for us next year and beyond. And uh, uh, and as a journalist, you know, if you if you say like. You could share what you think or you could share. I'd be interested in like, who do you think has really interesting takes on the future that we should be paying attention to? Like, I'm interested in looking. What are the trends? What are the things that I, I should know about looking forward for next year and beyond? For next year in the, in the economy or in housing? I mean, I would ask you about housing. Yeah. So I, let's talk about the economy. Well, I, you know, obviously things are going to slow down. I think the question is how much and and then what does the Fed do? I mean, th- so these interest rate increases are the this is the easy part, right? This is the low hanging fruit. It's easy to be aggressive and say you're really going to come after inflation when policy rates have been very low. And the unemployment rate right now is, you know, we're at three and a half percent unemployment rate. So I think the question I have is what is the how does that begin to change as the unemployment rate rises? Um, and, you know, when you're talking about very low levels of job growth or, uh, you know, a contracting labor market, then I think, you know, the decisions and deliberations will get a lot more challenging for the Fed. Um, because it's it's going to be hard to know, you know, when to when to call pause, and then do you cut? Do you stay at a higher level for a time than you otherwise would have? You know, the Fed is is concerned about the stop go episode of the 1970s, where you know the Fed chair in the 1970s, Arthur Burns, he's considered today to be somebody who wasn't tough enough on inflation, but he actually had a reputation as an inflation fighter. And they raised interest rates a lot in 1973, 1974, but then they cut interest rates after that as the economy went uh, into a pretty bad recession. And the lesson from it was, well, you hadn't done enough. So I think that's going to be one of the big questions uh, once the economy actually starts to face weakness. And then, you know, politically, it's going to be harder for the Fed, too, because you're going to have more people in kind of the political space saying, you're doing too much. You're, you know, Powell's crazy. What's he doing here? Uh, raising rates so recklessly. Can't you see that you've already fixed inflation? Uh, and so, you know, I'm not taking an opinion on whether that's the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. But I think that's where the challenge is going to be. The Fed uses what they call a risk management approach, which is really, you know, there are two mistakes you can make, right? There's the mistake you can make of doing too much, raising rates too much. And there's the mistake you can make of not raising rates enough. And so how are you going to manage those risks? Where do you, which one do you see is the easier problem to fix if you do make a mistake? And, uh, and then you kind of work from there. Yeah. So you actually see the Fed's job in the next year as getting more difficult than it has been this year. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, again, this is, you know, it's 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 easy. It's easy when you're starting the race to run fast. But, you know, what are you going to do when your your muscles are aching and you're, you know, you're thirsty and and uh, and you've still got to go. Right. Yeah, that's uh, for sure. And and the 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 looking at the 
the right it's you know from my side my amateur eyes here it's it's like the you know the fed gets is already under so much criticism you know from people you know all over you know the spectrum uh yeah like that if this is the easy part man we're you know we're in for some real challenge in the next year yeah well and you are hearing now from people saying you know that they're making a real risk now of of overcorrecting right of uh, if if they're embarrassed about obviously in hindsight they left things too easy for too long it didn't seem that way when they were doing it but the data broke hard you know in their face about a year ago the unemployment rate was at 5.9 percent in june of 21 it fell to 3.9 percent by the end of the year that's the kind of drop that the speed of that drop to that low level we've never seen outside of the korean war so you know the the data broke bad against them last year and it now looks obvious that they should have raised rates sooner but it didn't feel that way at the time and so if you and i are talking a year from now maybe we'll say geez it was obvious they shouldn't you know they shouldn't have raised those those interest rates in november and december but the other risk they have to take into account is what if inflation really is you know getting baked into the system here and it's much more persistent and you know you'd rather go to a five percent fed funds rate in early 23 than to find a year from now, oh gee, we didn't go high enough, and even though the economy's you know really weak, we gotta we gotta restart this thing here and go to six. You know that won't be any fun uh, for anybody either. Yeah, uh, and and you know mortgage rates at seven percent or or higher, it like was so far outside of my right view. Right, uh, even you know six months ago, like. Right. Uh, what does well, that look hear, like next year? You hear people say, well, six and a half isn't historically, you know, a terrible rate, but we repriced the entire housing stock at a sub four and a half, four percent mortgage, right? So, yeah. you know, the home prices we've seen over the past decade have been conditioned on everybody refinancing or purchasing with an interest rate below five, maybe significantly below five. And so you, yeah, you get these people who aren't going to move um because you know their monthly payment, you just can't, you can't beat it. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's, it's, it's not going to be fun for the housing space for a while here. Yeah. It's, uh, it's really fascinating. We've been talking with, with the feds sort of at the center of the universe. Uh, it, are there macro risks or factors that you see, uh, that, that it may be even longer term things? Uh, that that uh, that you're interested in that we should like that are worth noting right now. Yeah, I think one you know one question I have is, you know, it was easy for the Fed, comparatively speaking, to bring interest rates to have interest rates lower for longer uh, because inflation. There were forces that helped keep inflation low. You think about demographics. Uh, you know, the end of the Cold War and the integration of China into the global economy brought one and a half billion people into the workforce uh, globally, and that exerted downward pressure on prices. Um, you had, um, you know, you had abundance in in uh, energy mineral resources that helped in the U.S. a lot over the last decade. We developed, uh, you know, domestic oil sources that we didn't know we had. Uh, so the question I guess I'm getting at is what happens if those things are reversing? What if globalization is maybe not completely undoing itself, but 
well, you you, you don't know how reliable your supply chain is going to be. So you source from multiple buyers now, and that builds in higher cost. And you want to have a more resilient supply chain. And so what used to be kind of just-in-time inventory management, now it's just-in-case, and that builds in higher cost. Demographics provide provided a tailwind. We had a lot more cheap labor abroad. What if that's going away? That creates not necessarily higher inflation because the central bank can respond to it, but it does create higher inflationary pressures, which leads to just more volatility in the economy and in interest rates. And so, you know, in the middle of the the first uh, decade of the century, there was this term of the, the great moderation, right? The 1990s and the early 2000s were referred to as this great moderation. Um, but what you know, what if what if the past that we had isn't isn't what we're going to have going forward? What does that mean for policy? That's one of the things that I spend a lot of time uh, talking to folks about right now. And there are interesting arguments on both sides. Fascinating. Deglobalization is indeed a, a big macro risk that that I worry about. Like I, my entire professional career has been in a in a in an environment of accelerating globalization and therefore costs coming down and right. and wide open borders and then all of a sudden. Uh, we get trade wars and tariffs and yeah, and we get onshoring and we get like some of the some of the Trump and Bernie Sanders rhetoric uh, is is like, I mean, that's straight out of, you know, the 70s. Uh, and so and like so, you know, my you know, my my 1990s business school vocabulary is how like well, that was wrong. So so like this this, uh, you know, this deglobalization trend is. Is re- like I have no idea how to think about the implications of that. Yeah, and you, I mean, just look at the U.S. mortgage market, right? The the MBS market attracted international money, so American homeowners benefited because investors in Asia wanted to buy, uh, you know, pooled securities backed by U.S. mortgages, and that brought interest rates uh, for homeowners down. I'm not suggesting that's not going to continue, but. You know, there, you know, there are these kind of unknown unknowns out there. Well, what happens if, uh, you know, parts of the world decide to try to break away or challenge uh, the, the the dominance of the dollar or become concerned that the dollar, you know, you saw the dollar was weaponized uh, in the Ukraine war uh, because we didn't want to actually go to war with Russia. So we use these aggressive sanctions and and, you know, um, that there's longer term implications uh, of, of all of that. That's really uh, I'm, I'm I'm surprised you brought that up. The the weaponized dollar in the Ukraine war. That's one of the the crypto crowd uh, uses that as an example of why of why cryptocurrency and Bitcoin in particular is uh, is you know the is critical or the the, the path of the future. Um, and so, uh, is there? And this is sort of we're going in the weeds at the end of the interview, but I gotta I gotta go here because this is really fascinating. Um, tell me about like so if the do- the dollar is under pressure um, because because it's so dominant, what what are the options? Is it crypto? Is it is it it could be that you won, right? Like, well, what, yeah, I mean, I think yeah, I think you kind of get it. The the contradiction in the question: if the dollar is so dominant, what are people going to use? Right? It's it's like the Yogi Bearism. No, that restaurant's uh, too crowded. Yep. No one goes there anymore. Yeah, uh, there was you know there was an interesting speech 
that um, that Mark Carney, who was at the time the governor of the Bank of England, gave at the Fed's Jackson Hole conference in August of 2019. It didn't get a lot of attention at the time because Trump attacked the Fed that day. But if you go read the speech, Mark Carney, August 2019, he sort of suggests that, you know, the rest of the world monetary policy has become uh, because of the what the Fed does has such an effect overseas that we're almost we're, we're incredibly beholden to the Fed in setting global monetary policy. And and could we come up with a better system? And he sort of proposes a, a digital central bank currency from multiple jurisdictions. It'd be very difficult, obviously, to get this thing off the ground. But if you could do it, you know, that that's sort of the one time I've heard something where, well, is the yuan really going to replace the dollar? Because you have capital controls in China. You have questions about, you know, rule of law. And those are important uh, kind of fundamental elements in a, in a currency system, in a political system that has the reserve currency. But could you come up with some sort of, uh, you know, uh, multi-hegemon digital central bank currency, use the blockchain he sort of laid it out in a speech. And uh, and so that's, you know, obviously logistically very difficult to get something like that launched. But if enough people wanted to get together, um, maybe they could do it. Now, since then, I mean, I w- when I wrote my book, uh, you know, there was, a, there was a real threat there. Uh, the U.S. Treasury market wasn't going to be secured and the Fed acted right away, right? They, they ran in and said, this is the benchmark asset, risk-free asset. We're going to make sure it's there. There were dollar swap lines that they uh, relaunched with foreign central banks. Uh, and so you almost come out, It's a, there's a chance you actually come out of these episodes of greater international turmoil with the dollar's position even more entrenched because of how U.S. policymakers have responded. Fascinating. So many things to be able to get to. We're uh, unfortunately at the top of our hour, though. So, I, Nick, I really appreciate um, you taking the time. I love the book. I recommend it to a, a lot of people. Uh, it's a page turner, man. Uh, it's really Thank great. Thank you very much. Uh, so, uh, so let's leave it there. Um, Nick Timoros, uh, Wall Street Journal. You're on Twitter. You do like, you know, uh, it's you're easy to find. Thank and, you very much, Mike. I, I appreciated the, the the chance to to chat with you and 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 your audience. Looking forward to looking forward to watching the next year unfold. Yeah, same here. Take uh, care. Good luck. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Top of Mind. See you again next time, and be sure to click subscribe to get future episodes.